that's what the 80s was all the time. And it's like... Radio Drome. Welcome to another Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley. I wonder if you're nostalgic for the early episodes of this show. I'm not. It's not a shot at Brad. It's I'm not happy with the edits or how unpolished they were. But regardless, I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Peter the Gajic the Serbian. Yes, and I, I for one, am nostalgic for the early episodes of the show. It's pretty entertaining. Not as polished episodes, but uh, I still like to like to listen to them every now and then, and this was a way for me to get into the show. So I am nostalgic for the early radio drone. Fair enough. And Cecil won't be here because he has nerd flu. See, over the last week, he was covering packs for The Escapist, and he, along with many of the other people, caught nerd flu there. So, and I quote, I'm overdosing on NyQuil and sleeping the rest of the day. Oh, no. <laughs> so Cecil won't be here this week. He should be back next week, though. We got Glenn from the future because he's coming to us from the UK where it's already tomorrow. It, it's it's certainly tomorrow. It's very, very early tomorrow. I feel like I'm doing a very nostalgic episode for myself, actually. Um, like my first episode of Radio Drone, which was, again, at about four in the morning. Oh, wow. So if I sound like I'm asleep. <laughs> you might probably be. are. Well, you know what could wake you up? Well, neither of you could because you're both foreigners, but the Americans could go to adamandeve.com. Get, get woken up there. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free power O-ring, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. We're going to talk about nostalgia tonight and the dangers that come with nostalgia exploitation. Now, when I say nostalgia exploitation, what do you think of? Uh, I think as far as that goes, maybe something like, and, and I enjoyed the, the movie, like by... By no means am I trashing it because I enjoyed it for what it was, but I would consider it something like a Terminator Genoisis where that movie is flat out banking on the nostalgia factor for people to enjoy it because it's, it's straight out recreating scenes from the original Terminator. You know, when he, the 1984 stuff with the young Arnold and, and the T-1000 showing up for the sake of it and stuff like that, it feels almost more like a, a, a big studio fan film, fan servicey kind of thing for nostalgia's sake rather than a, than a real movie. Even though I enjoyed it, I can kind of see it for what it is, and it's it's sort of uh, like a nostalgia wink fest kind of thing. And I, I would sort of see that as um, exploiting nostalgia in a means uh, to sort of profit. I guess for me, it takes me right back to the uh, to the 80s, uh, for the obvious reasons, uh, video nasties apart from anything else, but not just those, the uh, just that kind of era of um, of films really kind of push the envelope yeah, in a way that you don't get these days. So I, I kind of, um, I mean, because these days there's, a, there's an awful lot of people have gone back to those, those formative films for me. That's that's whole kind of area of, of horror films and, and whatever. I, I see it now and you, you see it kind of being exploited in its own right, I guess, which is kind of fun. <laughs> The way I look at nostalgia exploitation is the, the meat, the studios and whatnot are exploiting your nostalgia. That they're not making a live action Thundercats movie because this really needs to be made. They're exploiting the fact that you'll go, Oh wow, I remember the Thundercats. Yeah. It, it, it's exploiting your nostalgia. I'm not crapping on this series at all because it was a great series, but something like Stranger Things. Stranger mm -hmm. Things I'm not saying people didn't understand it, but people seem to take the wrong thing from the show. It was a very good show, and I'll get into one of the prongs of why it is not nostalgia exploitation later, but something like Strange Things, the impact it had was not, this is a really good 80s style TV show. It was, 
Oh my God, look at all the 80s references, the 80s hair, the 80s. Look at how many lists came out on the internet after the, the season was released about all yeah. the 80s references you missed. And that wasn't the point. Stranger Things was not about, hey, look at all these 80s things. It was about, we're making a movie like a movie or a TV series like they did in the 80s. And I think that is mm-hmm. kind of the disconnect that something like Stranger Things had with its own audience. I really enjoyed Stranger Things as its own thing, making something in an 80s style rather than making something that is in an 80s style. Like they, I think they set out, much like the way uh, Reffin makes a film where he just wants to make an 80s movie. Like Drive is like an 80s crime thriller, essentially. It's very 80s Michael Mann. And it doesn't feel like it's trying to cater to any nostalgia. It just wants to make that kind of a film. Whereas I feel like that's what Stranger Things was. It was trying to be very... 80s Spielbergian kind of stuff. Uh, it sort of felt felt that way, um, but with more violence, obviously. Music as well. You, you had sort of a, was a bit of a Vangelis uh, Tangerine Dream kind of tinge to the music. It, it didn't feel like it was trying to be super spoon-feed as far as, like, nostalgia exploiting goes. Um, it felt more kind of like it was just trying to make something the way they did in the 80s. Like, they're just unironically making it that way, whereas you can very much spot something that is being ironic, like a Manborg or or those kinds of films that are very much like, oh, look at, like in Kung Fury, it's like, oh, everybody wore Converse and headbands and knew karate and drove around in Lamborghinis, Ray-Bans. It's like, no, this is, the Kung Fury was entertaining and I loved a lot of the music in it, but that is the, the direct difference between something like Stranger Things, which is a very, very very genuine attempt at making something that would have been made in the 80s. That that feels like something that would have come out back then as a, as a TV show or a film. Whereas Kung Fury just kind of seems like somebody that one scene in uh, Terminator with the tech noir or or saw a couple of like little 80s inspired posters or whatever with like neon pink and blue uh, with leg warmers and, and people doing aerobics and shit and just went, that's what the 80s was all the time. And it's like, no. Uh, no, it wasn't. I got around to watching that, but I think Peter's right. Um, there, there are certain films and uh, products which are made, I guess, uh, rather impersonal way to, to describe them as products, but there's various uh, films, TV series, all that kind of stuff that can actually uh, have been able to grab that 80s feel um, in a much more sincere way, in a way that uh, doesn't feel like they're just uh, trying to exploit it, I guess, is, <laughs> since, since we're on that subject. Uh, and th- there are other ones which are, you know, like, I guess Quentin Tarantino sometimes or just feels like he's flaunting that, that kind of look and feel on occasions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, there is a balance to be found when it comes to that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's fun to have... It's fine to have a little bit of fun with that kind of sense that, yes, sometimes when you look back in the past um, at something like the 80s or the 70s or whatever, you can make make a little bit of fun of them. I think, although it's not movie-based, something like um, Saints Row 4 when you have the 1950s sitcom section of that game um, and then you got other other things like... uh, In Saints Row 4, the part I like the most is when you can't even swear and your character points out the fact that you can't swear. Or or or, or or in the Santa Claus expansion when it's all done lit like you know a fifties Norman Rockwell painting, but your character swearing oh and being violent is what sets everything off. Yeah, yeah. And and um, uh, there's the Far Cry extra game, uh, Blood Dragon. Blood Dragon Blood, rules. Blood Dragon. Yeah, yeah. That was great. Got those those wonderful sort of moments in 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 those games that are just very much of the time that they're they're trying to betray and uh, they that feel like it very, they look like it. Yeah, that one was very genuine. I mean, they even use like they use music from Miami Connection before it's like Alamo Drafthouse re-release. They use music from like No Retreat, No Surrender, random soundtrack uh, clips from like Rocky. Just, just stuff that you don't see getting uh, regurgitated by everybody else. It felt like a real love letter to, like, 80s stuff, and you got Michael mm. Bean. It, it felt very much like a, a real Terminator knockoff from the 80s would. Like a, like an, uh, what was that? There's, like, American Warrior Steel Cyborg or whatever. Like, all, all these, like, weird uh, Cyborg Cop and, and these types of movies. That- Blood Dragon feels like it's the video game version of what an Empire, a Charles Band Empire picture Terminator yes. ripoff would have been. 
friend. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I think that's perfect. It's very, very Charles Bandy, for sure. Yeah, it's a great sense of love with that as well, isn't there, really, when you see something like that? And uh, I, I think with the example of uh, Drive as well, it, it, there's a definite feeling of not trying to rip off that kind of aesthetic, but actually sort of buying into it. Uh, but then mm-hmm. you get you get another film which will come along and will try to do that, uh, and it feels cheap. Yeah, that's when it really does kind of grind my gears. Is when you get uh, when you get a movie that goes, yeah, I'm going to be the eighties. I think I, I guess uh, I guess the Starsky and Hutch parody film which is the only way i can describe it that had a feeling of just going uh pointing at a section of um film history and tv history and just laughing at it and in a kind yeah. of sneery sort of way uh and that's what i would call exploiting the 70s film kind of aesthetic so you could call that a kind of exploitation in a way i guess but not well, in the no, uh, it, it traditional absolutely sense. is because it absolutely is. Because you have the condescending look at nostalgia exploitation, which, like the Adam Sandler movies, Pixels and The Wedding Singer. The Wedding Singer was all about, oh my god, look at that 80s fashion. Wasn't that horrid? Oh my god, look at the music they listened to. Oh my, that whole movie was, look at the freak, look at the mm. 80s. And then you have something like <laughs> Pixels. Pixels was all about just how many references can we can we shoehorn in here that don't really have anything to do with our plot? That's literally exploiting Qbert and Max Headroom and Pac-Man and all that because people will go, oh, I, I know that. That's Qbert. That to me, <laughs> the Adam Sandler stuff is condescending nostalgia exploitation. Whereas like mm. the Robocop remake making fun of the original movie is yeah. more of an arrogant nostalgia exploitation. They want the name, yeah. but not what it was associated with. Because they even show, like, the way the original RoboCop looked, and immediately my- Michael Keaton's character dismisses it, and it's like, no, it's got to be black and tactical, and red eyes, and people are bad. I like, shut <laughs> the fuck up. This is just horror. This is why your movie failed. But you also have a, you also have a weird kind of nostalgia exploitation that comes from a period piece that you're setting in the period for a specific reason, but for some reason the filmmakers decide to beat you over the head with the fact that it's a period piece. Like I loved Kong Skull Island, but that movie was constantly reminding you 1973. Look at that music. Look at the magazines. Look at the hair. The music. I mean, that movie kept beating you over the head, going. Oh my god, 1973 is when this takes place. It's like, you know what? I was there for the first 20 minutes. I know it takes place in 1973. You beating me over the head with it does not (laughs) help the movie. No, but that's an awful lot like whenever you see some uh, a film with London in, for instance. You've always got Big Ben and uh, um, some pompous British anthem going on or if you if you go Look, to kids, a, big ben parliament yeah you, you go to uh china and you'll get or canada even like they always have to make it obvious that it's canada everything's cold everyone loves maple syrup everyone's wearing flannel it's very very much uh everyone loves hockey like uh whenever some whenever something oh no i fucking hate hockey <laughs> for america i'll say sorry <laughs> yay Sorry, eh? (laughs) Sorry, the condescending nostalgia exploitation. Okay, this isn't so condescending, but like yoga hosers. Now, Kevin Smith seemed very earnest. I mean, yoga hosers was a god-awful movie, but he seemed kind of earnest in the movie he was making. Where I think he's being condescending is that he says... He made this movie for teenage girls. Okay, fine, because teenage girls are going to get those references to 80s Anthrax songs and 60s Batman and He-Man and things like that, right? No, you made this for you. Some of them will, but not all of them. It seems more like he's trying to pass the buck on it not doing so well, like because it was kind of panned, wasn't it? Like I don't think a lot of people. It, it, it's really a, I don't know if you've seen it. it yet, but it's a god awful movie. I haven't seen it yet. I, I watched uh, Tusk, and it really pissed me off. And then uh, this sort of looks like it's in the same vein. So it, it, I, I'm not. It, it is uh, Johnny Depp plays the same character he did in Tusk in this. Oh dear God! Screw yeah, it's that a then. sequel. No, I'm gonna be—I'll be skipping that one. But it does seem like he's—he's he's, he's made all these references that uh, people more of his generation would have gotten, or, or even people of mine that around roughly you know mid twenties, early thirties, later thirties, mid forties kind of thing. Whereas now he's saying, oh, you know, it's for millennial teenage girls, and it's like. 
you're trying to pass the buck now because it's a stupid movie, and now you're just saying, oh, well, it's directed to teenagers. Come on, Kevin. I think when it comes to how you relate to um, your audience, obviously there's going to be very different ways that you relate to your audience when it comes to uh, historical kind of times. Uh, And if you're trying to communicate something like the 70s, the 80s, 60s, 50s, whatever time, you know, which is before uh, a large part of your audience uh, would have been alive um, or possibly just aware of, you do have to have a certain amount of uh, what what to us would be condescension. And that, that sounds a little bit sort of uh, crappy. But, I mean, when you're talking about a film which is an hour and a half, two hours long, you've got limited time to actually kind of communicate certain stuff. And it's fine if you're making a film about the 70s that is for an audience that, that remembers the 70s. But if you've got an audience that is was born in the 90s or the 2000s, then there's a certain amount of scene setting, I guess, you got to do. Would that, would that seem fair? Very few old properties are brought to a new audience in a serious way. Like, Glenn, you brought up the Starsky and Hutch movie, which kicked off. Mm-hmm. Like, right now, we've got Baywatch coming. It's a parody oh, of the original Baywatch. We've got Chips oh, of coming. Of course it is. It's a parody of the original. And oh, you have God. so many of these. I mean, you had Bewitched. and I mean, I, I can't even list all of the movies that decided we're going to make fun of the originals. The original Starsky and Hutch and Chips and Baywatch and that were not great. They have an arrogant condescension of, oh my god, these were so bad. Like the 21 Jump Street movies. Even though they're they're technically not a reboot because they're in the same continuity, they're technically a sequel. Both those movies are all about, oh my god, can you believe how stupid 21 Jump Street the show was? Mm. And I hate that, that point of condescension that they come from of making fun of it. I mean, after Starsky and Hutch, the next movie they were going to do was a Cagney and Lacey movie in the same vein, where Cagney and Lacey were man-hating dykes because they were strong, powerful women in the 1982 show. So that means today they're dykes, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that does annoy (laughs) me. That that kind of attitude is... uh, I mean, that's that's not just showing a uh, lack of respect for the period that it's set in. It's certainly... uh, It's uh, showing a lack of respect for for the idea. And that's one of the worst things. I mean, it's fine to look back and have a few knowing nods of, yeah, that was a bit dated and that was a bit silly. Basing your entire movie's premise on that kind of attitude is, it's, it's a joke that wears thin very, very quickly, I think. And, and not only that, it shows a absolute lack of respect for anybody who did grow up with that stuff and liked that yeah. stuff. It's very easy to look back and just go, oh my God, that stuff was, was all lame. That is the worst kind of sort of youth mentality, I think, is, oh, my God, it's in black and white. I didn't like that because it's in black and white. You know, there was one property that I think did it right, and that was the 1987 Dragnet. When Dan Aykroyd Mm -hmm. brought that into the 80s, and and that was an official sequel to Dragnet, so that 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 is not a, a reboot, is he said, we're both going to make fun of not the old TV show and radio program, but how they don't work in an 80s cop show setting. And that's what was perfect about Dragnet. You had his character and Tom Hanks' character as each of the archetypes, and the movie showed how they don't really work together and how they have to work to make each, you know, to massage each other to work. And I think that's why Dragnet was such a, a successful film, maybe not box office wise, but as a, as a continuation property, it, it showed respect to the original while pointing out, yeah, it wasn't perfect. I think a good example to something like that would be something like Return of the Living Dead, which is almost sort of the same thing, where it's connected in a way to the original Night of the Living Dead, but kind of saying like, you know, it's, it's Night of the Living Dead exists as a film within Return of the Living Dead, but it's all this is something that that really happened. So it's it's kind of paying respects to the original by also making something that's satirical, but very much uh, serious and cool in its own way. There's there's a lot of films that try to do that kind of thing though. Um my mind always comes to stuff like uh, Club Dread or Tucker and Dale versus Evil as as actual as films that actually kind of do that stuff and work. I mean you don't have to necessarily like the films. I know you don't like Club Dread, but it it's one of those films that 
takes the, the, the object of its derision and actually shows an awful lot of love for that. Um, it plays all the tropes and stuff, but it doesn't just go, that's stupid, that's stupid, that's stupid. There's a clear love for the subject matter in there, which, which films like the um, Starsky and Hutch and um, films of its, its kind don't seem to quite manage to do uh they just look at it and go it's stupid it's stupid it's stupid and it feels like they've barely watched the things as well it feels like they've they've read some sort of um list uh from uh, a particular kind of websites that you see these days that um just look at something and point out the flaws rather than actually going yeah they're flaws but we love them you know, I, I think Dragnet was another one, as far as I can remember of it, was another one that actually does that kind of stuff uh, well, that not only pokes fun at it, but is clearly done by someone who um, had an affection for the subject matter. And the, but then you've got the other side of the token, where some humor and lightness for, for the original is necessary, like the Michael Mann Miami Vice movie, that was so dark and serious and utterly humorless if it wasn't for the names of the characters, it's got nothing to do with Miami Vice. That's yeah. one where I think they needed a little bit more color and levity. He overcorrected, I think, from Starsky and Hutch. I really hate uh, the the Miami Vice movie. It's I was looking forward to seeing it when it came out, and it was such a such a boring, bland, flat film. It, it's I, I love uh, Miami Vice. At least the first couple seasons of it. It's a really really great staple of uh, '80s television, and was was very cool when it came to like you know sleazy uh, crime drama, undercover cop kind of stuff. And I really love it for that. I love it for all the music in it. And then the movie was just such a departure from that. And I, I could see people enjoying it if they weren't really a fan of the original, like a weird GoPro kind of look to it, like using very cheap looking digital cameras. It was a, it was a strange um, departure for Michael Mann. His movies always felt so much more grand scale and all his other projects, you know, films like films like Heat and films like Manhunter and Thief, um, which have such a, such a great, large scale look to them with a lot of uh at least his eighties films would use a lot of a lot of color, some neon and very like driving kind of like 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 eighties kind of synthy music when he would anytime he would use like Tangerine Dream or, or something like that. him to me is he was one of those like prototypical like eighties filmmakers that really captured the aesthetic that I really enjoyed probably the most. And then his Miami Vice uh, feature finally that he made in the two thousands with uh, you know Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx too much of a departure. For the original source material that I just wasn't able to to enjoy it. Like all of the all of the things that made Miami Vice interesting weren't in it. it it's another one of those times where they, they've actually got thing that they captured slightly the um, the other way around with that particular example, I guess. Certainly, they they tried to go for some of the look um, and perhaps didn't capture uh, some of the feel of what's going on. And and that's something that happens quite often when they're trying to uh, do something retro is they'll get the look, but they won't get the feel of the originals. And some uh, in some respects, you're kind of wondering what it is they're thinking when they're doing this, that uh, is it just an aesthetic thing that they're looking at? In which case, why bother? Why not just make it, you know, absolutely current, go that yeah. way with the same story, you know, just shift it in time and, and, and do it rather than even trying to approach it to, as, as being um, a period piece, I guess. Which is exactly one of the other things. When you're doing a nostalgisploitation, the biggest prong that you have to hit, and this is what are, I think Stranger Things both fails and absolutely succeeds, is if you take the setting out, and if you, like Stranger Things, if it was not set in 1983 and was set in 1993 or 2013 or any other time, would the story still work? And I think for Stranger Things, to a degree, yes, it would, and to a degree, no, it wouldn't. Something like The Wedding Singer, take that out of the 80s, it's the exact same story. The 80s are just there to go, ha ha, look at the 80s. That's when you know you're <laughs> exploiting the nostalgia when you have the wrong audience. Okay, I, I'm going to correct myself. Not the wrong audience, because I grew, I wasn't born until 1975, and I grew up watching 1950s monster movies and 30s universal films and all that. So, you know, older people might have said, well, I'm the wrong audience for that. So, no, I, I misspoke there. Ah. When you when when you have, when you're aiming at the wrong audience, I'll, t I'll, I'll change it to that, because 
it's it was recently revealed in a study that of like you know all the 80s nostalgia that's coming out with all the t-shirts and all the posters and they're you know putting out all these 80s DVDs you know I mean 80s movies on DVD at Walmart you can get like a classic 80s set eight movies for $10 and it's got you know legend of billy jean weird science and all that on it a recent study found that over 70% of the stuff from the 80s is being consumed by people that weren't born until the 90s. Wow. So is it a strange thing that the people consuming this are getting, I don't want to say skewed, but their their version of an 80s movie is what they're being sold versus what it actually was? Kind of. I mean, you did make the example that you enjoyed stuff from like the 60s and 60s when you know, you were growing up in the 70s and the 80s. So it could just be that yearning to kind of find out more about that era and having an interest in it. Because I know I was I was born in 88, and when I was growing up, you know, in the early to mid-90s, I was watching a shit ton of 80s movies and 70s movies, 60s movies. I loved all the, the Universal Monster stuff and Hammer Horror and, you know, 80s slashers and 80s cyberpunk sci-fi action flicks and whatnot. So it could just be whatever you're into, you're into. If you see something, you latch onto it, you enjoy it, great. Have fun with it. But I do think a lot, I'm going to say more of the bigger studio stuff that's trying to capitalize and exploit the 80s, they're the ones skewing people's perception. It's not so much the younger people that are watching the real 80s movies like Weird Science and stuff. They're actually watching genuine stuff. Bigger studios that are putting out, and I I've, I've saw an ad for this particular film on YouTube just the other day. It's called Baby Driver. I don't know if either of you have seen a trailer for this one yet. I have missed all the advertising for that one. It is an obvious, weird cash-in on the uh, the whole 80s uh, retro wave kind of boom. It's a very uh, 80s, uh, I would say 80s exploitation. I wouldn't even say 80s style. Because the main character, he's wearing a Letterman jacket. He's wearing Ray-Ban sunglasses. He's a getaway driver for a sleazy, you know, criminal cartel or whatever. He falls in love with this unassuming waitress who calls him Baby. Everybody calls him Baby. He's this mysterious guy. There's, of course, like sort of synthy music in the trailer. And there's little nods to 80s things, like they're going to they're gonna rob a bank. And uh, a guy is wearing a Austin Powers mask. And then the guy at, tells him, I told you to get a Michael Myers mask. I am wearing Mike Myers. It's, but no, that's Austin Powers. Yeah, Austin Powers was Mike Myers. Dude, the killer from Halloween. Oh, you mean Jason. And it's this, like, very... <laughs> It's horrible. Like, it, I saw the trailer, and the first thing that clicked to me, this is six years too late to try to piggyback off of uh, Nick Reffin's drive. What, what it sounds like is this is made by someone who did not grow up with those things first row. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's That's what I'm getting from it. It's a very, like, studio boardroom kind of thing. It's like, you know, I've, I've really been noticing a lot uh, online and show. There's the Stranger Things and Kung Fury and all this stuff. Turbo Kid did good. Uh, there was that Drive movie. And there's all these, like, YouTube channels with, like, retro wave music and stuff. You make a movie like that. So let's go down the list. You got Letterman jackets, dark sunglasses that you wear indoors and at nighttime, uh, the synthy music, uh, slasher and joke stuff. Let's, let's make that into a movie. And it's, it just feels so fucking studio, like a big studio idiot movie of, of none of these people are actually fans of this kind of stuff or grew up with any of it. It's just a, a studio full of moron talking heads, uh, that, that think they know their audience better than the audience know them themselves and it just seems like, like what i'm um perceiving it to be which is if drive was left in the hands of big studio execs it, it's kind of popular for whatever reason i, I guess you know you always kind of there is a tendency for people to look back at uh, certain periods of time and pick out the goofier stuff really to kind of look at i mean i, I could do that with a photo album really when i look back at me in the 70s for instance <laughs> uh, my god the collars uh, <laughs> you wore bell bottoms, didn't you? Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, I, I think that's as much to do with the people that are kind of making it. And it's not to say that their their people haven't uh, actually lived through it, because um, I pretty much guarantee most people who are kind of in that position to greenlight or or even um, control or manipulate those products, um, they are going to be about our sort of age. When, when you look back, at, you know, when you look back at some of the stuff that we kind of watched, there's certain things that uh, played with those kind of nostalgia sort of things, or, or even played up the images of the time. I mean, if you look at Gremlins, how many kind of culture references does 
something like Gremlins make. I would um, say Gremlins 2 has even more. But, oh, God. Well, well yeah, mm. I, I actually like Gremlins 2 more than the first film, and I told that to oh, Joe Dante. God. He agreed with me. What was but, that, I like, what even confused me as a kid was when it kind of snaps back from being a movie to being a movie within a movie, and you have Hulk Hogan watching the film and telling the Gremlins to shut up. And it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> but, I mean, the, the first one is um, filled with references. I mean, it's, it's more of a, I guess, a 1950s kind of film. When you look Kinda, at a lot yeah. of stuff that's going on in there, it's almost like a really perverse version of It's a Wonderful Life. You know, you've got this this kind of small-town America in, uh, at Christmas, and you've got you've got your Grinchy character in The Old Lady, and you've got the... Uh, the uh, He's a bank kind, teller. Yeah, you've got the kind-hearted yeah. uh, person who's, you know, um, an outrageous drunk. And, uh, and there's even images but, like in Glenn, the bar uh, where, where the Gremlin's got the leg warmers and all that kind of stuff. So they're, they're even poking fun at the time they're in. Well, yeah, but Glenn, that's, that's kind of it's a wonderful. It, it's a wonderful life. Did not have Dick Miller, so Gremlins wins. <laughs> and that's fair enough. Play, I, I think they actually play clips from A Wonderful Life in Gremlins as well. I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly, but I I feel like somewhere on a TV it was playing. I think you're right, so and I think it was actually a big. I, 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 they they probably did, but I mean, Weird Science is sort of the same way. It, it's yeah, not only so obviously in, inspired by Bride of Frankenstein specifically. They're watching. They're actually watching <laughs> it on TV at one yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of meant to be like a modern take on on Frankenstein's monster. It's like, what if instead of with lightning and with the dead body parts and stuff, what if we with a computer? So the that's sort of the '80s variation of, of that kind of tale. Yeah. But, but see, I don't consider that exploiting Bride of Frankenstein because they're doing like an update without it really being an update. But like an ex- more of a, a nod, like it's more of kind of yeah. a respect nod, I would say. Right, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that. Oh, the movies I like are okay when they do this. I'm saying, look <laughs> at the, what the movie is doing. Who is asking for some of these movies? Like Chips and Baywatch being the newest ones. Who was clamoring for a Chips movie after all these years? <laughs> I remember uh, that being very, very camp, even when it was out in, uh, it, even in the day. Feels like there's no point in making like a campy reboot of it when it was already like. Has, has anybody seen that film? Does anybody remember the TV show and how hammy Eric Estrada was and shit? Like, I mean, do we really need uh, a movie that pokes fun at it when it clearly kind of already was pretty satirical from because i've seen uh you know reruns of it and whatnot it was a pretty like it it played the line of being kind of funny and then really poking fun at itself and being sort of campy and whatnot so i i, I don't see the point i just want to know who's going to play quincy in the quincy movie oh my god <laughs> yeah, i'm desperately trying to think of some names but um yes it's very early <laughs> in the morning my brain is just then what about when when they are doing this nostalgia exploitation like miami vice and chips and baywatch and stuff like that and the main audience that's going to go see these because like a movie like like the chips movie and the baywatch movie those are made for people who did not watch chips and baywatch growing up they're not these movies are not made for your built-in audience they're made for the people who aren't your built-in audience is that a flawed perspective to come from right off the bat i don't think it's the best way to to approach uh, any particular reboot i guess you could call it uh, revival i think that that allows them to do an awful lot of other things but it, uh, i think for anybody who is a fan of those properties those those titles they're always going to be a little bit shortchanged by that because they um because it's just a recycling project at that point for those people and that's a real uh letdown for for anybody who's actually familiar with the history that's going on and you'll notice that they always put in the little things that the little tropes from whatever thing that they're doing so so they can say yeah well you know you can see in the original there's this and then in uh in the remake uh we've gone and uh we've upped it by 10 times and that sort of thing and it's i don't even know why they bother to be quite honest with you why they don't just slap a new name on it and make it a new property completely it I, I don't know any fans of the original who would enjoy that kind of approach you know when when all you're doing is mercilessly mocking it i mean we all know as fans the shortcomings of any particular uh, thing from our childhood or from our uh, younger years what they're trying to say what they're trying to do are they pointing fun at us as well and saying you you were stupid for liking that stuff or I, it, it never feels loving it always feels a bit cynical and a bit lazy yeah even when it's kind of the opposite too like you know the way with the, what, what they're doing with chips it's like they're trying to make it even more goofy and even more silly then you have the other spectrum which is taking something that was very 
hammy and whatnot as a, as a property, you know, when you were younger, like for me, it was Power Rangers. That's kind of what, what was really big at the time when I was growing up. And it was, you know, shiny motorcycle helmet wearing dudes that fought monsters and their, and their big cardboard robot. And then you've got the new, uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers will be coming out and it looks like super dark and the, their outfits look like, uh, colorful versions of, you know, Christopher Nolan's Batman outfit. They're trying to make the monsters scarier. They're trying to make the, uh, color in the show a lot more so it's kind of the opposite it's like remember this like really campy fun loving thing you liked as a kid it's like now it's all dark and gruesome for the the modern age i, I don't know how to feel about that i don't know if it's if it's being uh if it's trying to be nice narration or that shit was when you were a kid no it's turbocharged seem to have the the same level of heart it feels very like shiny and uh it's trying to be bleak and dark and it's like uh uh it was there was the kids version when you were a kid now now you've grown up now you've got the the version for adults and it's like i i can still enjoy cartoons and stuff when i was when i was growing up you know i can still enjoy stuff like the old uh x-men cartoon and uh the 90s batman hell I, I can still sit down and watch some episodes of power rangers and enjoy them i don't need to be, have the uh saturation turned down and the uh, the darkness and shadows added in to remind me that i'm watching something adult don't try to spoon feed this kind of shit to me yeah i, I think it's a shame when um when, when something's presented to uh, a younger audience and there is no frame of reference for them i think for the audience maybe it's possibly for the better because if having to make that comparison can sometimes be a deal breaker for uh for any uh revived product i guess i i think you know certainly with something like chips i don't even know how that would actually read again because i mean when it came to stuff like um the 18 for instance like that i can't watch those anymore i don't watch them anymore yeah, and uh, but, uh, but that's the thing. I mean, I, I most of that I daren't go back and watch again because I do have very fond memories of it. Um, certain things I can go back to um, because I already remembered them for what they were. But uh, as a kid watching the A-Team, uh, you know, I couldn't see any of the faults at the time. Um, I just enjoyed them uh, in, in a very, I guess, passive kind of way, as we do with a lot of um, stuff when, when you're kids. Don't you love it when a plan comes together? Yes. <laughs> when they did the remake of it, as I mean, that's a bad film. That's a bad remake yeah. in just about oh every God. possible way. Um, and I, I will. I, no, I, I'll, I'll give it one thing. Liam Neeson was damn perfect as Hannibal, though. Yeah, <laughs> and probably a lot, lot nicer to work with. Uh, but you kind of look at those uh, that that kind of thing. Um, no, no, the film some, somehow managed to uh, really kind of pump up the stupid as well, which was astounding. But um, I think as an audience member, if you hadn't seen the originals and you watched that, you might have found it quite passable. But as a um, as somebody who was familiar with it, watching it, that was a weird experience seeing that film. What's almost weird about the uh, A-Team remake as well is uh, at least whenever I'd watch the original show on reruns and stuff, my favorite character was always Mr. T. To me, it was like, it's about Mr. T. It's about Mr. T's van. That's the whole point of the show. He's the coolest character. He's Mr. T. Shut up. He wasn't even B.A. Baracus to you? Was he just Mr. It's T? It's just Mr. T. It's just Mr. <laughs> T shows up, kicks everybody's ass, and he rides around in his cool van. And then the original, <laughs> not the original, but the remake, they made it all about uh, Face Man. Played by uh, Bradley Cooper, and it's all about him doing sit-ups and shit like that. It's like I don't give a fuck about Face. I, I don't like this character. He was boring in the original show. Nobody paid it. It was all about like Hannibal and uh, and Mr. T and the the wild card character. What's his face? Um, Murdoch. Murdoch. Uh, Murdoch. Yeah, th- those three were the were the best. And Face was always boring. Like nobody. He was just like, okay, you're you're uh, we're gonna get you. We're gonna send you into the building to like charm up the 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 woman at the desk, and then we're gonna sneak in and go beat up everybody. And then uh, plan comes together, blah, 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 Van T punches somebody, end of the episode. Whereas, like, the, the remake is like, oh, Bradley Cooper is so hot. And it's like, who the hell cares? This was the nah. most boring, boring character of the original show. Like, it barely was, features he... the van. Like, it was it was such a, a weird version of, of something that was so entertaining for certain reasons. And they took all of those things that made, like, the original endearing and, and were like, let's make it about this character that nobody gave a shit about. That's, I used that's a good idea. <laughs> are, are sequels decades after the fact nostalgia exploitation, like Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights, or oh, the, the, the Wall Street sequel and all that? Is, is that nostalgia exploitation where they're like, you loved this movie in the 80s, now we're finally making the sequel we should have made a year after the original? Is that nostalgia exploitation or just 
exploitation. Oh man, because uh, I have I have differentiating opinions when it comes to that. Because some of them are I, I good. Like uh, I very much enjoyed. Uh, I forget which year it was. Um, they both came out like a year after one another. It was the first Rocky Balboa and then Rambo, like Rambo 4 and Rocky 6, I guess you would call it. I, I liked those a lot. I thought Stallone did a really good job with those, and they felt like the right bookend that those should have gotten because Rambo 3 should be retitled to Rambo Helps the Aikida, which is um, very cringy. And then you have Rocky 5, which ends on such a weird down note of like, you know, he's lost everything. He has none of his fame left. He's broke. He has a street fight with some random failed boxer at the end of the movie, and he headbutts a Don King wannabe. I think that's how it ended. So it was a very weird way to, to end the series. So I feel like Rocky Balboa was nice. When it, when it's done, I think it is, it's a good thing to do it uh, in a fashion that moves with the times to some extent certainly when you when you're talking about uh, rambo and things like that that's that's a very good example but um you do get plenty of films that come along you know and again we're, we're just going to revive that and it's pretty much more of the same and i guess with with the uh, example of uh, rambo 2 and 3 were very much that they were uh, very much emptier vessels they were done yeah. to kind of just push that story back out there uh whereas the like uh the, the first and the last one um were very much uh more more stories that uh furthered the characters and all that kind of stuff like kind of sequels that, that do come years after the fact usually take those characters and kind of put them in a in a different context and with the wall street for instance i think Having such a massive gap and having the change in uh, what's uh, where the characters are and what they are is a, an interesting thing to do. It, it's arguable about how well they actually managed to do it in that one, but I certainly applaud the attempt to not just capitalize on the original, but to kind of go, right, this is where they were in the 80s and this is where they are now. That's an interesting kind of uh, approach to take, whether it, like I say, whether or not it succeeds or not is is another matter. I'm just waiting for the the gritty Alf reboot, where because he liked <laughs> to eat cats, they substituted for grabbing pussy in the Trump era, oh and, my God. and they try to make some political allegory out of out of Alf, and you know, like he's literally an illegal alien or something. I I, I, I could see. <laughs> I just picture Alf saying, "Oh, grab him by the pussy," and it's like little <laughs> mm-hmm. Alf voice. But, but then I guess my, then the last one would be, isn't it, is it nostalgia exploitation when you make a movie out of a show? And in, in this case, it's a show I absolutely loved and I, I liked the movie too, but of a show no one really remembers. Remember when they made Naked Gun? That was a movie version sequel of a TV show that bombed and was almost completely forgotten. It's amazing that the Naked Gun movie got made, but I can't imagine what the thought process was. Remember that TV show that lasted six episodes and came in almost dead last? Why don't we make a movie out of that and then have a studio throw money at them? That is, that's something that should be championed, huh? The fact that Police Squad was made into successful movies is kind of a minor miracle. Yeah, um, and I didn't even know that, um, Police Squad was a show until I think you pointed it out, and I binge watched I actually think the show is better. I, I, I watched it's the six hilarious. episodes of the TV show again. It's actually funnier than the damn movie. It's so, um, unforgivably, or, or not unforgivably, but, um, what is it like? It's just completely, um, unapologetically politically incorrect. Like there's a scene, I forget what episode it is, but like it's these characters are at a party and the girl is like, oh, let's, let's go out and talk in the Asian garden. And they go outside, Asian people standing in, uh, garden pots. Like for no fucking reason. They're just, that's it. It's an actual literal Asian garden. And that made yeah, it, I, because I, the pun is it, funny. I had to pause it because I was laughing so hard at how fucking taken aback by that I was. Like, I wasn't expecting that. I thought they were just going to go out and there were going to be, like, little uh, bonsai trees or whatever. But no, it's just an Asian businessman, an Asian businesswoman, and a little Asian kid. And they're standing in, like, garden pots. And it's like, I, I about died laughing just because it was so random. Joe Dante directed two episodes of those six, too. Oh, I could see that. I could really see that. It's it's his style of stuff. It's his uh, style all the absolutely. way. Absolutely, Yes. 
it's a nice thing when um, it, it can be one of the positive, one of the few positive things when studios revisit old properties is when they bring attention to the originals. Even with the bad um, film versions, at the very least, they do introduce the the originals to some extent, or at least the idea of the original to the uh, to a new audience. And uh, if if we're going to come away with anything, I guess positive from uh, nostalgia exploitation, I guess that's possibly it. And even with someone like Quentin Tarantino, the references that he makes uh, has probably brought many people to films that they would otherwise never have got the chance to see or or even at hear least about. With, at least with Tarantino, he helps. He actually includes. People like Sid Haig and Robert Forster and yeah. the people from the era, and he revives their careers. Yeah, even like something the, uh, like Harvey Chips Cattell. and Baywatch. Chips and Baywatch. I don't even know if there's cameos from the original crew or from from the original cast. Mm. You know, it's all new. Tarantino at least has reverence for. You know what? Robert Forster made a lot of kick-ass '80s movies. Yeah, I'm gonna r- bring him into this because Jackie Brown is one of those weird examples where it is nostalgia exploitation, but it's done right. The movie is definitely a late 90s movie, but it almost perfectly feels like a mid-70s crime thriller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels and that very, is very hard serious. to do. Yeah, mm. and, and that's where the love comes in. I mean, as much as um, Quentin Tarantino has an awful lot of faults, I don't think there's any um, legitimacy in denying the fact that he loves that stuff. That certainly comes through in, in, in the films that he makes, that he has this um, uh, near-obsessive love with those He's things. He's the only person who would have put Sonny Chiba in a mainstream studio film yeah. in this day and age. <laughs> yeah, he loves everything about that stuff, and that's very um, apparent. And he's introduced a lot of people to uh, many films and many uh, character actors and so on that they may never have had the um, opportunity to have seen otherwise yeah i I think as nostalgia exploitation goes for whatever his faults um we kind of owe him a little (laughs) little bit of credit for at least that but you also have something like the expendables the expendables movies i like our nostalgia exploitation I, i enjoy the second one i'm not not big on the first and third one okay well the expendables movies to me are pure nostalgia exploitation to me they if you had a totally different cast of all modern actors, it wouldn't work at all. It fails I agree. the prong of if you take out the nostalgia factor, does the movie still work? No. Like with Stranger Things. You take out the nostalgia factor, it still works. Mm-hmm. Expendables, you take out the nostalgia factor, it's just a really expensive direct-to-video movie. Yeah, um, very. That's kind of the point, though, because it was meant to be this sort of celebration of all the old action stars coming together and just having fun. I, I like it. Uh, I didn't hate the first one. I, I enjoyed it, and I felt like it needed more over-the-top oomph to it. it needed more I, Eric Roberts, damn it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, he did get a cool death, though. He gets shot like six times and has a giant knife thrown through him. That was pretty cool. But then the second one, I feel like, up the ante. There was more over-the-top kind of stuff, which is what I wanted to see. The first one Jean-Claude felt... Jean-Claude Van Damme was playing a character named Villain. Yes. See, it's very self-aware. They they knew exactly what they were doing. They just wanted to have, have fun. And, and make a movie that is, I think, pretty much tailored for people who, who grew up with and love uh, 80s and early 90s uh, action films, specifically a lot of the direct-to-video stuff. It feels like more of a very good direct-to-video kind of action film rather than like an actual studio theater one, and I, I really liked it. I, I think Expendables 2 is incredibly fun. And all the little little cameos and people getting together and having fun and, and stuff and just kicking ass with loads of violence. And the, the fist fight between Van Damme and Stallone is, is just great. And then the third one decided to go with the PG-13 rating, uh, converted <laughs> converted to the uh, you know, di- producer's or director's cut, which uh, in that effect, it was uh, something very cheap they're doing. They'll film a movie bloodless, and then in the afterwards they will edit in the CG blood, and so they could be like, "Oh, R-rated director's cut," and it's like, "No, it isn't. This is the same exact movie. You're maybe adding in a couple more fucks here and there, and a couple more little fake blood splatters." The Expendables three was very, very much a, a letdown. How much of a departure from the fun of the of the second and kind of the first one were? You have stuff like that, or like Scream. Scream is one of those condescending. Oh my. 
God, all those slasher movies you guys loved, here's why they all suck. Scream had a smugness to it that literally pissed me off when I was watching it. I, I found the first one or two were fine. Uh, it was later on. I didn't, I certainly didn't get that feel from, um, particularly the first one. I thought Wes Craven pretty much hit an awful lot of that stuff pretty well. And that's a guy that not only <laughs> grew up with that stuff, he was making that stuff. Yeah. And, and well, I, no, that, it, it's not like it's a, it's not like the 80 slasher movies are above criticism. It was the smug, arrogant script that that really sunk that movie for me it wasn't necessarily the direction or the actors the script was so smug and self-assured and i've used this word a bunch of times but condescending to the audience i, I never got that myself um i didn't oh. I, I think possibly the um i can't remember who's the actor who played the killer in it uh, the skeet ulrich and matthew lillard Yes, I think uh, there was a certain, uh, I I don't know, maybe there was a little bit of a miscasting in in them. Because because Skeet Ulrich is just discount Johnny Depp? (laughs) He kind of is. (laughs) He is kind of, isn't he? That's a a pretty good observation. I think it was just the way a lot of the lines were delivered and um, particularly the, the killer's voice in the phone calls and stuff did feel incredibly scripted. Uh, I, I, that's the only real kind of complaint I would have with, um, that particular movie is, is that aspect of it. And I can see that would particularly, um, perhaps suggest, um, a certain arrogance to it because that's how the, how that character was played, uh, deliberately or otherwise. I don't know, but you know, I, 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 th- I thought it was all right. I thought it was okay. And, and I think it kind of, particularly cause it, it came from someone like Wes Craven, someone who has made his career out of doing that stuff i i'm more in more inclined to give it a little bit of uh trust i guess that that was never the intent and it didn't really come across quite like that to me maybe just being a little bit cynical nostalgia exploitation is heading in a dangerous direction i think you have something like kung fury is played on el rey and you know massive social media presence and it, it didn't work for me because it was all making fun of the 80s. You have a film like Turbo Kid, which is the film Kung Fury should have been. Yes. And Turbo Kid is almost completely unknown. Turbo Kid is fantastic. That's the pro- Turbo Kid was freaking great. And Turbo Kid subverted my expectations because within the first five minutes, I thought I was going to hate Apple. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, we're going to have to spend the whole movie with her. She's the damn heart of that movie. That yeah. movie doesn't work without Apple. Turbo Kid is the movie Kung Fury wanted to be. That's where I think we're going in a dangerous direction with Chips and Baywatch and all this. We are literally exploiting nostalgia instead of using it as a springboard for something else. Or embracing I, it. Like, embracing like, it genuinely. Like, yes, like, uh, embracing of, is the perfect word. That's what Turbo Kid did. It, it felt very much like a, a love letter to that kind of stuff, and a lot of times even felt like a Without genuine, being smug about it. Yeah. It, it, it was it not felt, smug. It honestly felt like it could have come out in the 80s. Like, it sort of, it had a lot of, um what it reminded me the most of, I think it was Enzo Castellari's Warriors of the Wasteland is sort of what it reminded me of because it just vibe of of like cheap italian mad max cyber kind of knockoff where it's like there's no more gasoline in the world so everybody has to ride bicycles and they're kind of like filming around their budget like kind of saying like, and michael okay, ironside is a villain come on yeah he's fantastic at it he's really 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 good and all the costumes look like they were kind of thrown together then it really felt like uh something you would randomly discover from the archives of like random italian mad max exploitation type movies it really felt genuine to that kind of era and the music was fantastic i i love uh, everybody, I think, gave a great performance, including the and, uh, Apple and uh, that weird, like, random uh, robot hand Australian dude and Michael Ironside and, and that villain who's in, like, he's wearing, like, the skull mask and kind of looks like Casey Jones and shit. Like, it's just everybody in that movie was great. And the costumes had, really had that, like, kind of Mad Max exploitation look to it. Like, like as I said, like, you know, Warriors of the Wasteland and Endgame and 2019 after the fall of New York. Like, it, it, Kung Fury was very tongue-in-cheek. And I think it was... Um, it was going in that direction, and I'm glad its duration was only about 30 minutes because I think if, if that went to feature length, I might have hated it. But I think the the shorter length made it work, and it, it had even you shared one of the uh, tracks from the film. You have to admit, at least the music in Kung Fury is is pretty fucking great. I I hope that um, 
there will be enough films still continue to come out that actually celebrate the the, the history of film and television as opposed to just um, just strip mining it. And that's when it's um, demonstrably the worst stuff, uh, when you get the Starsky and Hutches, uh, when you get those terrible semi-comedy, in air quotes, uh, kind of uh, products that come out is when the studios basically are looking at the negative aspects of the original rather than demonstrating uh, a love for them. And mm-hmm. whether you go with a, a film that is a comedic take or whether it's a serious take, there has to be that recognition of the inspiration and why it, it's an inspiration, whether mm-hmm. it's an inspiration for it to be an object of having a few laughs and enjoying it for those things or whether it's or whether you're looking at it and going actually there were good serious things and then going in that direction that's where i hope it goes but we're talking about hollywood and and the likes here we all know there's going to be uh, plenty of the versions that are just basically um look at all the silly shit that went on in that uh isn't it stupid and that's that's a shitty attitude in my opinion and we didn't even get to because i mean tarantino doesn't set all of his movies in the 70s we didn't even get to something like rob zombie we get it you love the 1970s rob (laughs) (laughs) so on that note where can we find peter gajic uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Cinematica, on Facebook, the Cinemasochist, on uh, YouTube, the Cinemasochist, and on uh, 1201beyond.com, uh, clutching to my nostalgia like a f***ing security blanket. Where can we find Glenn Criddle from the future? It's hard to get nostalgic about the future, isn't it? Uh, you can find me on uh, YouTube as LampyMan101. Um, I also write for Frankly Green Bay. And uh, just Google the Nasties review. You'll find probably many, many re-uploads of people wanting to take my views. Sounds a little bitter, but okay. <laughs> And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. And you go to the website. It's very an 80s-looking website. I like the 80s. My favorite decade. You go to 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.